0: Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy. I hope everybody has had a wonderful beginning to your semester, that uh, you're not overwhelmed. Uh, I've met quite a few students that are dealing with uh, syllabi PTSD. Uh, There is help for that. Um, Hopefully it wears off quickly. Part of our design was that Labor Day would be that kind of therapeutic day for you in the midst of that. Um, But I hope you've had a wonderful beginning uh, to your semester. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy of his own personal testimony. And I think as he does that, he is actually going to address, in a sense, his own understanding of God's work in his life and how that impacted then his approach to ministry. Uh, You know that this Uh, book, particularly 1 Timothy, is framed around charge, possibly two, but at least a charge that is framed several times throughout the book. And it it helps us remember that there is a driving point to what Paul is writing to Timothy with regard to his role at the church at Ephesus. And you find that, that charge fleshed out a number of ways, whether that be through instructions in reminding people of truth, or proclaiming the truth, or standing for the truth and not being ashamed. And we'll see that charge right after the passage we're in today, in, in 1 Timothy one 12 through 12-17. And I believe the connection there is that, that Paul is actually going to share out of his own life gospel experience, um, really his view on what it means to guard the faith. And so I want us to consider today... Paul's own testimony about being faithful in light of grace, and I really want you to see yourself in light of Paul's description of himself. So Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, prosecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. To the King of the Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Grace, we all know what grace is. We all know about grace. I think we all have a level of understanding of grace. If I threw out to you, hey, help me with this, what's the definition of grace? I think we could work through that and. I think inevitably we would get something like God's riches at Christ's expense, and there's, there's truth to that. Um, it's interesting, though, um, that that grace, particularly through the 90s and early 2000s, actually became a really challenging topic. There's a book written in 1990 by Chuck Swindoll, The Grace Awakening, and it actually turned a lot of people's understanding and thinking about God's working in their life with regard to sanctification on its head in light of this understanding of what grace really is. And I really think it affected with a, in a way of creating tension between the working of grace in a life and the pursuit of holiness. I, I think, I, I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but I, I think in light of that atmosphere, it wasn't surprising that in 1991, Jerry Bridges wrote the book Transforming Grace. And he actually said there was something to what Swindoll was writing, but I'm not sure that it actually should affect holiness. I think it actually should affect, if you will, our theological understanding of, of grace in light of the fact that we tend to live on a treadmill of performance. That's really what Bridges addressed. I actually want to recommend to you another book that he wrote that in 1994 that is called The Discipline of Grace, God's Role and Our Role in the Pursuit of Holiness. And I think he really takes... From his 1991 work, Transforming Grace, and deals more with the aspects of of sanctification that I think got off the rails in Grace Awakening. This is a book that I, I would recommend to you. So what is grace? Alan's definition, and I did this by surveying where I see grace in the New Testament, specifically enumerated, connected to an idea. So grace is divine provision, whereby God provides for his own, and I find it in these areas, for salvation, for sanctification, for service, for succoring. Had to use a good King James word to get another S. That's compassionate ministry to others, understanding, empathy, if you will, both ethos and pathos. And then finally, for sacrificial giving, you find in the New Testament, those five areas where grace is specifically connected to those kind of things. So it's divine provision whereby God provides for his own for salvation, sanctification, service, succoring, and sacrificial giving in such a way that they cannot and therefore should not take the credit. That this divine provision is in a sense dispatched to God's people. You know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for example, right? For by... Are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves? It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so you see divine provision for salvation, and it is dispatched in such a way that I cannot and therefore should not take the credit. And you see that same principle connected as Paul talks about the grace of God in his life for sanctification. It's God that works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. You find it as well in service. You find it for having compassionate hearts, that God does a work in me, that where I wouldn't normally be compassionate, he actually impacts me in such a way that I'm not just feeling empathy, but it actually drives me to a kind of ethical pathos, that that feeling causes me to minister in a way that is beyond what I normally would. And you find it in sacrificial giving as well. This is grace. And thus there's this idea of divine enablement connected to the understanding of grace. In this passage of scripture, we're going to see Paul, I think, as he works through his own testimony, deal with what really is a pretty robust understanding of grace in his own life. And he'll deal with that in three ways. I want us to see the pattern of grace, the purpose of grace, and the praise of grace. But as I do that, I want to challenge you with an interesting thought. I went back and just touched a lot of resources again in thinking through grace. And you know, just in doing that again, there's an interesting phenomenon that has happened with grace in our day. And that phenomenon is this. It's almost a deistic approach to grace. We talk about grace as though it's a God unto itself. Well, the grace of God did this. And it's almost that then we lose the of God. And it's grace is this and grace is that and grace is this and grace is that. And one of the things I want you to find in this passage of Scripture is that God, God's grace in Paul's mind is never connected from God. And in a sense, this is something God did in his life. And so I want you to see that actually the first usage of the word charis, and it yes is a broad understanding, it's connected to thanks or thanksgiving, it's connected to joy, and then our normal understanding of grace is actually in Paul's expression, I thank him who has given me strength. He actually makes this really, really personally connected to God. It's not like this grace of God somehow hit me in a vacuum and there's this grace that now, and no, it is God that does it. And how does God do it? Through his gracious action. I really want to challenge us not to lose the direct connection that God is doing something in my life. Grace is not doing something in my life. God is doing it and God does it by his grace, but Paul is going to end this passage of scripture with a really clear doxology that brings us back to this idea. I thank God and at the end of it, he's going to be all about God. This you can know that the actual effectual working of grace in your life is going to cause you in the end to make more of God than you did before. Whatever that is, We have this tension, I think, that comes right between a couple of things, law and grace, right? Well, I think as you understand your New Testament, there really isn't a tension there. But whenever we're talking about the pursuit of holiness, somehow we can end up with some kind of tension there. Is it all about duty and do or is it all about done? Grace is about done. You hear these expressions, you read them, and I would say that that actually is a false dichotomy. A heart that's gripped by God through his grace is a heart that becomes more and more passionate about obeying the God who gripped me with grace. There's really not a tension there. We see a false dichotomy in a sense then that is that is created between Paul and James, right? Paul said, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. And James said that what? Faith without works is dead. How does that work? There isn't attention there. Why? Well, we know in a particular setting, James and Paul were together at the Jerusalem council where they explored the impact of what uh, the, the law meant for the gospel going to the Gentiles, and they ended up in total agreement. So we know there wasn't an, an argument between them, and I believe you can see that they're facing two different audiences addressing two different issues, standing back to back on the same gospel. And James actually says some really key things about grace. So let's look at this passage of Scripture in light of some of those things. And I want us to see, first of all, the pattern of grace. Paul writes to Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, prosecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here we see that, at least by implication, the theological impression here of grace speaks of God's loving forgiveness that is freely given to those who are not just undeserving, but those who are ill-deserving, those who are deserving of condemnation and judgment. And that act of God moves them from darkness to life and death to life from in a sense being without worth to now in a sense being made worthy for the task of ministry it is a marvelous work of God and this is what Paul lays out for us as something that God did for him he is challenging Timothy and I think in light of the struggles that Timothy is facing as he is in a sense this apostolic emissary at Ephesus. I'm not sure that we can leap to saying he's the pastor of the church at Ephesus as we would understand the normal process of a congregation calling their pastor. Paul actually has put him in the place to say, now Timothy, you stay here as my emissary. So the role is different and even in the in the charge that's given to Timothy here to guard the faith it actually is given in a sense this apostolic oversight that was beyond just him being the pastor of the church and i think I think we need to be clear there and so i think in both first and second timothy you find a guy that's in a role that had the understanding it was for a purpose and it was temporary and so there's this idea that Paul's writing to him First Timothy, say, whoa, 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 okay, I'm not coming back yet. And, and in 2 Timothy, I'm, I'm not coming back at all, so you need to stay. And so in light of that, I think that, that Paul is sharing particularly his testimony with Timothy to say, hey, Timothy, I want to remind you of something. I received this gift of apostleship because of the grace of God. I'm in this role, not because I was so great, or I was so powerful, or because I had so much education. I'm in this role because of the grace of God. I was unworthy, and he made me worthy. I was unfit, and he made me fit. And one of the things that I would challenge us with regard to ministry to remember is always remember that it is God that makes us fit for ministry. I think that's key in two ways. One, I think we have a tendency sometimes as we engage in the ministry gauntlet to make it about us and therefore we lose confidence. And I will tell you, if you're going to address sin issues and I'm addressing some of them right now on our campus that are overwhelming to me. And if I thought to myself, okay, does Alan have the wherewithal, the credibility, the standing, the intellect to be able to rightly address this? I wouldn't address it. That's that's one of our weaknesses. It's a weakness we know Timothy had. Paul's calling him throughout these these pastoral epistles to confident boldness, but in light of who God is and in light of what God has said, not because of his position. I think the other side of that coin then is the second thing that is also true. I think this is a challenge to us with regard to overconfidence. That we, because of maybe what we think we know, or the training we have, or the position we find ourselves are in, we actually leverage our own authority in ways we shouldn't to accomplish ministry. Grace actually addresses both of those. And so I think that's part of what, what Paul is addressing here. Paul's heart was thoroughly saturated in a full-fledged understanding of the unsearchable grace of God in his own life. And I believe that it is a search that he continued on. When Paul would describe his life's passions as that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his grace, Paul is expression expressing a personal ministry heart passion to continue to understand what God did in his life So he could then comprehend what God is longing to do through his life. I would challenge us to look at Paul as a pattern of grace and say, you know what? If I'm preparing for ministry, I need to follow that pattern. Resting in his grace when I need to. And in a sense, making sure that it addresses both my sense at times of of weakness and lack of confidence and gives me the boldness it needs to. And at times it addresses my self-righteousness and overconfidence when it needs to. And I think Paul's addressing that with Timothy by sharing his testimony. But look then as he explores that. I am so good with a remote. A pattern of grace. He's going to deal with this grace and his, his salvation, isn't he? So he addresses saving Grace. Paul's testimony is remarkable. I think New Testament, because of the number of times we see Paul's testimony specifically addressed, and and the language that is used in this passage about God making of him an example, I think this testimony is one that's given to us uh, very acutely and on purpose. And so understanding the, the stark and radical change that comes about in this Man's life, Saul of Tarsus, is there as an example to us. Paul is not using hyperbole when he sees himself as the foremost of sinners or the chiefest of sinners or the worst of sinners. I think he actually is categorizing in his mind that he understands that without the grace of God, he is completely hopeless. And so I don't think he's just saying, hey, let me give you some hyperbole to get your attention. He actually is addressing his own understanding of his own heart. I was as bad as it gets. I had nothing to offer. And this is why in another place he would describe all of what men would see as worthy works and as acts that were worthy of righteousness. And he would describe them all as filthy rags and as dung. He had nothing to bring to the table. And there God met him in his grace, and in this passage he also mentions his mercy. This is saving grace. Paul mentions, and I won't belabor the point, but this idea of his ignorance. And all I I want to say to that is that he is not saying that there was a place where because of a lack of knowledge, he did not need to be saved obviously. There's some that want to run with that. Okay, oh, there's certain sins that God just overlooks because there was a certain level of ignorance. No, I think actually what he's saying is connected to Numbers 15 and Leviticus 5 and the, the understanding of the law there. It actually put Paul in a place, if you will, that he was in line if he would receive it to receive mercy, but it didn't mean that he wasn't guilty. But Paul is actually describing his salvation. And in a sense, what I would challenge us with from his testimony here is refresh your soul often with what God did in your own life in saving you. Refresh your own soul often with what God did in grace in saving you. Unfortunately, I think we go too long without actually getting to be refreshed through seeing others come to faith in Christ. I think we go too long. So I want to challenge you. Remind yourself often of what God did in saving you. I want to challenge you as a minister, thoroughly build your own testimony. What do I mean by that? I have come to understand much more about what God did when he saved me than I understood when he saved me. Why? Because I've explored the gospel, and I believed the gospel, and I believed enough to be saved, but I did not fully understand and therefore fully appreciate all that God had done for me to save me. I refresh my soul often when I read gospel truths when I read Paul's testimony, what Paul then delineates as his own life change, and I look at that and I say, if this God saved him, that God saved me the same way. So if God did that for him, he also did it for me, though I didn't understand it. You see, the depths of God's grace and the depths of God's mercy in saving me were exactly the same as they were in saving Paul. He didn't somehow reach deeper to save Paul, because I too was the worst of sinners. I was completely beyond bringing anything to the table that made me savable. So as you explore the doctrine of salvation, explore it through a personal lens that says, he did that for me. I was guilty in that way, and he canceled my debt that way, nailing it to the cross. And so he talks about saving grace, but notice then he actually moves on to serving grace. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. I don't think this was an expression where he looked and said, oh, okay, here's a specially faithful guy. I think the judging here actually is a result of the working of God in his life. And in a sense, the giving of the strength is what put him in the place of being equipped for service. This is literally the same word that is used in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. In other words, by the grace of God, God enables Paul in service to do all that God calls him to do. For Paul, that was starting churches all over the known world. That may not be the same task for you, but the God who saves you strengthens you by his grace in an equipping sense to do all that he's calling you to do. And so I think we should be encouraged by that. I think there's a sense that if we understand the grace is the same and the God who gives that grace is the same, and we'll see he's the God at the end of this passage, that I actually can look at the ministry gauntlet that I'm called to and I can look at this pattern of grace in Paul's life and say, how could he ever do that? How could he suffer rejection like that? How could he go through the beatings he goes through and the days in this? All that he describes... It wasn't because Paul was such a great man. It's because of God who by his grace strengthened him. And Paul gives us a pattern. He gives a pattern to Timothy that says, Hey, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me, the servant of Christ. Actually, look at my testament. I'm living an example before you. Why? Because it needs to be an encouragement to you that if Paul could be used by God, enabled by God, equipped by God to fulfill the ministry gauntlet that God called him to, there should be hope for me because it's the same God who gives the same grace and I can pursue serving him. But then there's a grace that sanctified. This idea of he judged me faithful or trustworthy and it was grace that made him so. 1 Corinthians 7.25, Paul described himself as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I don't think those are platitudes. I think we see clearly, and Bridges does a good job of that in the, the disciplines of grace, that there's a direct connection between God sending his grace and the work of that grace in the life of those who have received salvation In fact, Paul writing to Titus says in Titus 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what does it do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, this grace has a sanctifying work in our lives. As I mentioned at the beginning, there isn't really a tension between the understanding of of obedience to God and the grace of God. They actually work in conjunction that a God who works in my heart by grace brings about a passion in me to obey and love that God. This is exactly what's happening in Paul's life. It ought to be happening in our lives as ministers of the gospel. So Paul's pattern would challenge us in a third way. Are you, in a sense, growing in grace? And what is the measure of that? I think there are several things. I think one of the tangible things, I think we see it with Paul when he expressed this understanding of thanksgiving or being, if you will, beholden by grace. That's the thankfulness. Grace had gripped his heart. That we become more gracious. I think as I am growing in grace, as I understand what God has done for me, and as God's work in my life is changing me, I should be becoming more gracious. I think by that it means I should be more ready to extend grace when I can. But those two things being said, I don't think we can divorce this, that I should actually be becoming more Christ-like. Those two things are part of that. But the act of working of God's grace in my life should be setting me more apart to the God who is working through his grace in my life. I should be becoming more passionate about pursuing holiness and being more like the God who saved me in his grace. So then I want us to see quickly the purpose of grace Paul writes this, verse 15, the, the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. It's a regular usage of his. It's calling to attention to what is going to be a pronounced doctrinal truth, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul understood that God wanted him to have a life that displayed what Jesus had done for him. That there's a a sense in which him understanding that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners had this direct connection. That because of who he was and what God had done in his life, that his life was somehow now to become a display of the gospel work in his life. And thus his role in ministry. I think this little expression, this saying is trustworthy and you're serving a full acceptance, isn't saying that everybody needs to understand and everybody needs to come to agreement that I'm the foremost of sinners. It is about this gospel expression that Christ came into the world to save sinners, and then it's connected to the idea that part of what he is doing in that is he is displaying these grace-converted sinners to the world as a demonstration of what his cross work can and will do. In other words, as we engage in ministry, our lives should display the gospel that we're going to minister It ought to be a passion of my heart that my life is an example of the saving work of Christ. And so there's a a purpose to this grace. Paul, in a sense, makes clear here that as the chief of sinners, he wasn't just the ends of the gospel. Great, thanks God, I'm saved and off I go. That actually this grace working in his life was about ministry. It was about displaying the gospel. It was about, in a sense, being this example or pattern of the working of God in the lives of men. How do we guard the gospel? I will tell you, folks, as ministers, if we somehow make that a task that is objective to us. Oh, one of my jobs is to guard the gospel and I'm going to do things tangibly to guard the gospel and I have not internalized that this means living or guarding the gospel in my own heart. We're going to at best be weak in that task of somehow having the gospel over there and saying, ooh, I'm going to have to protect the gospel. I think our passion in rightly protecting the gospel will become uh, more real to us Because of us understanding that our lives are to display that gospel. And I guard it in my own choices. I guard my own heart. I discipline, if you will, my own heart according to grace. I pursue the God who through grace saved me. Because I want to display the gospel in my life. Living the gospel is a huge part of guarding the gospel. I don't think we can disconnect them. And I want you to see a simple third truth. And it's that this all brings Paul to this doxology. And I think the gospel, grace, should bring us to this. I think as we talk about this, we should not be able to end saying, say, God, thank you. And in doing so, There's a sense that Paul affirms in his mind, his confidence that he is saved. Why? Because of who saved him. Can I be sure? Can I really know? Can I rest in confidence, both in my own salvation and in the gospel? I'm going to minister to others. Yes, I can. Why? Because of the one that saved me, because of the one who is the dispenser of grace. Who is he? To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is an exuberant doxology. Paul cries out, the King Eternal, the sovereign of the universe before creation and after creation, to the final ages and on into eternity, be honor and glory forever and ever. Immortal to the one true God who's not subject to decay or destruction, and is absolutely imperishable and incorruptible, to him be glory and honor forever and ever. Invisible to him who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see be honor and glory forever and ever. To the only God, Monotheo, he is the Lord and there is no other. The I am that I am to him be honor and glory forever and ever. And this is why I can rest confidently in the grace of God. Because I rest in confidence in the one true and living God who in his mercy extended grace to me, when he saved me, when he called me into his service, and as he is sanctifying me for his glory. How can I guard the gospel? By fully understanding and deeply appreciating the God of grace through the lens of his grace to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the testimony of Paul. Not because of Paul, but because of you. You saved him. You radically transformed him. You remarkably used him. And he stands as a testament to us. We look at a dark world, and at times we wonder, can they be saved? When we look through the lens of the grace of God displayed in the light of one who called himself the worst of sinners, we're encouraged that Jesus never fails. Lord, when we look at our own lives and maybe we struggle with besetting sin, we can be encouraged that you are the one that working graciously by your grace are transforming us. And we in submission and surrender, repent again and turn from our sin and turn to Christ. When we wonder, can we run the ministry gauntlet May we be reminded that we are but vessels through whom you will work and you are able. Father, I pray that through deeply embracing the grace of God, you would help us to fuller embrace our great God. And through that, live lives that guard the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.